Welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. This episode is sponsored by Centrelink, Australia's welfare system. Well, it's not really. I am sponsored by them, but it's because I'm a student. If I was actually making any money doing this, they would cut that straight away. But that would not be the case if I was receiving a universal basic income, which is the topic for today's episode. So a universal basic income is a form of social security in which all citizens or residents of a country regularly receive an unconditional sum of money. If that sounds like free money for everyone, it's because it is. It's an idea that's rapidly gaining traction across the world, and for good reason. It does away with a large portion of the huge lethargic beast of bureaucracy, and fundamentally, it ensures that every single citizen, no matter what their circumstances, has enough money to live. A number of studies have come out over the past few years that have suggested that up to 60% of jobs are at risk of automation. These jobs are not just your standard manufacturing jobs either. Combinations of robotics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are putting jobs in the knowledge worker fields at risk as well. Jobs in the fields of accounting, the law, programming, and even medical diagnosis and routine surgery could be at risk. In light of the impending unemployment crisis due to automation that will affect the entire world, a universal basic income may actually be necessary, a notion echoed by future forger Elon Musk. So if you want to hear about some of my thoughts on basic income, uh, stick around to the end of the episode for a segment which I might end up calling uh, Sam's Soapbox. <laughs> Basically, I just speak for a couple of minutes on what actually is a basic need in the 21st century and how a basic income could be seen as an entrepreneur's allowance. Anyway, talking with me today on the topic of universal basic income is Dr. Carl Weiderquist. Carl is co-chair of the Basic Income Earth Network Executive Committee. He is also an associate professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. His research is mostly focused in the area of distributed justice, the ethics of who has what. He holds two doctorates, one in political theory from Oxford University and another in economics from the City University of New York. He is also an author of a number of books, including one titled Independence, Propertylessness and Basic Income. A theory of freedom as the power to say no. We kick off our conversation talking about the core theme of this book, the philosophy of freedom. I was really happy to get to talk to Carl about this as I haven't heard too much on the topic in the context of basic income. We also talk about different ways basic income could be administered, a bit of basic income history, and some of the economics behind it. And that's enough of a preamble. I hope you enjoy the episode. All the links to things discussed in the episode can be found in the show notes at talkoftoday.com slash podcast. Thank you and enjoy the show. My name is Carl Weiderquist. I'm from Cassopolis, Michigan. I'm for basic income because I think uh, it's wrong for anybody to come between someone else and the resources they need to survive for any reason. I'm an associate professor at... SFS Qatar Georgetown University, which is Georgetown's campus in the Middle East. Um, I uh, have a doctorate in political theory from Oxford University, and I am the author of several books, including 
freedom as the power to say no, and prehistoric myths in modern political philosophy. So I guess I'd just like to start with that, since you mentioned your book. A core to that, uh, your book is the idea that we are currently not free. Um, could you expand upon that, or not free in the, in the standard sense? As many people would, like, many people listening to this would say, you know, I think I'm very free. Uh, how, how, how would you comment on that? Well, um, the, uh, what my book does is, it, this book is uh, a book for philosophers. Um, it is not written for somebody who has, has never read political philosophy before. Now, you, you could, uh, I, I should come up with a list of like what you would need in background to understand it. Hopefully, it is written in a way that is self-explanatory, so anyone could read it. But um, you would find I'm trying to explain the background of debates that have been going on for centuries, and you probably, have, uh, and uh, you might not have read it all. It doesn't mean uh, it, if somebody has trouble with it, it doesn't mean that uh, that anything bad about them. It's just they're not a philosopher. It's something that philosophers know. So what it is, it's entering a, a question that philosophers have been asking for probably thousands of years, which is, what does it mean to be a free person? How should we define this? Um, how do we define freedom? And it's hotly contested. There are uh, at least dozens of different definitions of freedom going going on around around the world, um, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of definitions of freedom, and a big controversy. Now, the one that people are most familiar with, I think, is the idea of negative freedom, is that I am free when no one's interfering with me, um, and the less people interfere with me or coerce me, the freer I am. That's negative freedom. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, um, you've probably heard of that one, and uh, it's quite clear what negative freedom is. Uh, it's less, well, actually, there are competing conceptions of what do we mean by interference and what do we mean by coercion. So uh, that's even not coercive. But now, I am working within this negative freedom idea of, of freedom is the absence of coercion uh, and or the absence of interference, which I think are close enough together uh, that we could group the two now but what i'm looking at is what does it mean to be a free person because uh this is something i think philosophers have not talked about enough is that freedom is used in two very different senses it's used in the sense of uh of um of something you can have more or less of you know we say oh if if a if a policeman pulls me over and gives me a ticket for going 30 miles an hour in a 20 mile, an hour, 25 mile an hour zone, um, you can convert that to metrics for those of you in Australia. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, I am less free because someone is interfering with me wanting to drive as fast as I want. Now it might be justified interference, but they are interfering with me. Um, and they're also they're taking some of my time away. So any little thing like that, when people are make you put money in a parking meter in order to park, that's going to make you a little less free to do something else. And it might be justified, 
but it's a little thing. And, and you add up all the little things and you get big things. Um, and we look and, and the idea of negative freedom is this the idea is that, well, the less people interfere with you, the, the freer you are. And the more people interfere with you, the less free you are. And it's a, it's, it's what we call in, in, uh, it, it's what people call in, uh, in math, this, this misleading of a continuous variable, one that goes up and down, up and down from very low to very high with anything in between. Now, but we have this other thing that we call a, a, a status variable or, or a status sense of the term where it's a dichotomous variable, uh, to use the big word. It is one thing or another. It's A or it's B. I am male or I am female. And actually, there's stuff in between. Um, uh, there's There are people with ambiguous uh, uh, gender characteristics in between those. Um, but we think in these binary, I'm either male or female. I'm either Australian or I'm not Australian. I'm either... Um, uh, I'm either this or that. Now, freedom, we use this in both senses. You know, we use it when you say, oh, I got a parking ticket, so I'm a little less free today. You know, it's not very significant, but I am. Now, but we also use it in this other sense, this dichotomous sense, where you say, I got out of prison. I gained my status as a free person. When I was in prison, I was un an unfree person. When I get out of prison, I become a free person. I get this status of freedom. However... Um, however, there is not a lot of philosophers talking in the status sense. What does it mean to have the status of a free person? The philosophers are mostly focused on what is the way to define it in this sense of being a continuous variable, more freedom, less freedom. And I'm trying to say the focus needs to be on, needs to be at least some focus needs to be on what does it mean to be a fully free person, uh, a person that has the status of fully free. And we know that getting released from jail or slavery doesn't do it because after slavery in the United States, when we gave the slaves their freedom, we introduced a horrible system of segregation that was meant to oppress blacks and was meant to keep blacks in the most subservient, low-paid position because our economy was highly dependent on having a really big pool of low-wage labor that was going to pick cotton primarily, but also do, do some other things. And so they did not become fully free. And, um, and so I'm trying to create here a theory of what, what does it mean to be fully free? Now, of course, full freedom is going to be made out of all the little freedoms. Uh, it's going to be made out of all the little freedoms that make up negative freedom. So you get a you get a uh, parking ticket. You know, one day, you know, police pull you over for parking uh, for speeding once, but uh, that's no big deal. But if they do it every time you step out of your house, they're stopping and frisking you. They're pulling you over. Uh, saying you were speeding, and there's a, enough of those, you're not free anymore. Uh, you have lost your status as a free person. And there are many things, but I'm saying that there's this one thing, um, there's this one thing that we should include, and that is freedom from forced labor, freedom from being forced to do what other people want you to do, being forced to go into a job and take orders someday.
for for so many things or being forced to do what your husband wants you to do because you're dependent on his and and I say this is a negative freedom in the sense that people have this power, at least able-bodied people have this power as long as nobody interferes with them. Our ancestors had this power because our ancestors were brought up to know how to hunt, gather, or fish, or farm, or scavenge, to go out in the wilderness without owning any property and find the things that they need. And it's quite clear from anthropological studies of people who have lived in the conditions of hunter-gatherers, as our ancestors lived in at least some different conditions in the hunter-gatherers have changed over the years. So our ancestors had this ability. Um, they had this ability, all, all the able-bodied And there's no one who can't learn that. There's no one who, people today are not stupider than our ancestors were 100,000 years ago. They were perfectly capable of going hunting and gathering to get their own needs. They, they'd work with people when they wanted to, but nobody was in the position where I, they needed a job. No one needed to go in and say, okay, I'm going to do what you tell me to do 40 hours a week, and, and then and, 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 and I, do, I serve your wants for 40 hours a week, and then in the rest of my time, I get money with which I can serve my wants. Now, people didn't live well. People didn't live well in, in that time, but they lived without taking orders. And, you know, maybe it's worthwhile to take someone's orders 40 hours a week because it makes you so much better off. But that's your choice. If you're a free person, you can, you, you, you can access, you don't need, you just need people to get out of the way, just give you some negative freedom, enough negative freedom, so you can go and use the resources of this earth to meet your own needs. And we took that away. Because government said, oh, you can't do that with the environment because we've taken the environment and to give it to other people that we call property owners. And the only way to get some of that property is to work for somebody who has some. And that puts this big pool of people in this position where they have to work for at least one member of that other pool. Um, and they will have to work for them a substantial amount. And a lot of people never get to that point where they own enough property to to not follow someone's orders all day in their life. Um, there, uh, uh, a lot of people don't make it till retirement age, and a lot of people die before they're able to retire. Um, there are a lot of 75-year-old Walmart readers who uh, are, are dying uh, and have never been free from having to follow somebody's orders. And it's not like we're all following each other's orders. Those of us without property are following the orders of someone who does. And how many people follow your orders depends on how many resources you control and have property rights to. And that's what I'm objecting to. Say, we as properties, and I, you know what? I'm one of the property owners. I, um, I lucked into a position where I own... Uh, my brother and his wife and his wife, together we own 18 houses and we're shopping for more. And so I can live off that property for the rest of my life. I am totally free. I never have to take anyone else's orders for the rest of my life because I'm a property owner. But because I own property, that means 
other people can't access that property to um, other people can't access that property to to survive on their own. And maybe hopefully I'm I'm improving this property and giving them good services for it. That's great. But um, I I am also making it impossible for them to make it on their own. And I and if I'm part of the group that took away people's ability to survive on their own and made it so they can only survive by by um, accessing resources controlled by others and following their others, some their their orders, perhaps for the rest of their life. I owe them compensation. I owe them compensation sufficient to make it so they have the power to say no to not just to me, to but to my whole group that they can work for themselves and not work for someone's orders. Um, that's why we owe. That's why. We need this some kind of payment, some kind of access. I think the best way to do it in the modern world is with basic income. We could do it with Rex access to resources. You know, people could call my bluff and say, "Okay, we're gonna. You want a homestead? We will give you. We will give you land to homestead with, and it's gonna be you know good land, so you can make it for this. And and you're gonna. It's not gonna be too far away from home, so you have to give up everyone you cared about your whole life. I tell you, you make uh, forty acres available. Uh, in Queens, so that everybody from New York City who wants uh, can go and homestead. And if you put that out there, and nobody wants it, everybody says, "Oh no, I don't want a homestead. I'll I'll take a job." Then you called my bluff. Okay, you say, "Okay, we've given you that to you, and nobody wanted it, so uh, we're all free." But you got to keep it because it always could be maybe tomorrow somebody will want. It. You got to have that, but it's always got to be available. But I have a pretty strong suspicion of what would happen. We made 40 acres available in Queens. Uh, first of all, we have to spend like a billion dollars buying the land. First, there's that. But then I have a really strong suspicion is there's going to be a waiting list of people who want to do that homestead. A huge, a huge, as New Yorkers would say, waiting list for that. And there'll be a, a one in Sydney, too. And there'll be one... Uh, you know, in every city in the country, you'll have this thing and there'll be this huge waiting list. Um, and so it's much cheaper for us instead of making this land available and trying to, ah, we got you called your bluff. Um, instead of assuming we know the answer, assume knowing would want it. Um, and instead of, uh, instead of, um, instead of, um, Wasting all these resources, finding out, oh, wow, people really do want a homestead instead of the crappy jobs we give them, is that we owe them cash compensation, sufficient cash compensation to maintain the status where they don't have to be someone else's servant if they don't want to. doesn't mean they don't have to work, but they're not working for others. And the system now is you work for others, you take their orders, this group takes that group's orders. And we haven't really created a fully free society where, unless we get to the point where everyone can work for themselves if they don't like working for other people. Now, that was a long answer, but I actually didn't fully answer your entire question. Because you also mentioned, um, you mentioned why don't people feel more unfree? People don't feel like that they're completely unfree. Um, uh, would you like me to tackle that question yes, before we go please, on? Yes, please, please. Okay, great. Okay, well, there are a bunch of reasons why we why we don't feel free. Uh, 
One is that life is the Truman Show. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Truman Show, but there's a show where this guy is, uh, he's, he exists in this tiny little town, and he's being filmed the whole time, and he never, until he's 30 years old, he never suspects that this town is just a fake for him to, uh, uh, to make him a television show. And, and they asked the director, why is he never suspected that this is all fake? And, he, and the director says, we all accept the world around us. And if you read philosophy, you read the great philosophers of the world and realize the ridiculous things that they didn't think of question. Um, uh, 2,000 years of philosophers, male philosophers, and, um, until feminism really moved off. Um, hardly any of them. Plato was the only one who, uh, of the major philosoph male philosophers who I know of, who, who completely rejected male superiority to women. Everybody else, the Truman Show, it just accept the world around you. And you know what? A lot of females did too. Uh, um, because that, that was what everybody told them. I am I am not equal to men. It takes a lot to think out of that. And you know what? Plato, it's not that Plato was better. He thought out the box in that one thing. But you know what? Plato thought it was natural for non-Greeks to be slaves. So Plato, the one guy who could see women as equal... Could not see blacks. Well, not, well, it wasn't blacks at that time, but it was it was it was like uh, Ionians or something. You know, people who we would consider. What's the difference between that and a Greek or something? Like, uh, or Illyrians? Or I, I don't know my ancient ancient uh, uh, Anatolian area uh, ethnic groups. But uh, now, so we one. So one of the big reasons is we all accept the world around us, and this this idea has become so ubiquitous that we have forgotten that work can be anything else. So if you don't want to go and, and, and eat, eat dirt at Walmart every day to, to, to uh, be a servant for whatever the Walton family wants you to do all day, we think of you as lazy, unwilling to work, forgetting that that is not all work. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of farmers just go out and work for themselves. They don't even, you know, a subsistence farmer works for themselves, doesn't work for other people. A, a small business owner might have to work for themselves, but at least they, uh, at least they have more direction than this other, than this other person does. Um, so we we don't think about this as being. We, we just forget that work can be something else other than going in and taking orders all day. And that's just what you should do. Um, now, partly, uh, this works out great for the property owners because uh, property owners working for them, people think that everybody's thinking that is what work needs is to work for property owners. And I'm benefiting from that. I get probably it's easier for me to hire labor if, than it would be if people didn't think of that way. Um, we try to pay living wages anyway and hope we're succeeding. Um, but, um, but we, uh, we have this, we have this system. So people accept this system as normal. That's one reason. Okay. Another reason is because a lot of us have jobs that we wouldn't quit. Um, whether I told you I could quit my job tomorrow and I would not Star. I, as a matter of fact, I would not live in poverty. Even my wife, who has more expensive tastes than me, admitted both of us could quit our jobs 
never work another day in our life, and we'd get by. We wouldn't live great. We'd have to really scrimp. We wouldn't do all the traveling we love to do, the nice restaurants we like. We wouldn't do that, but also we would have an okay life. Um, and you know what? I wasn't in this position in 2008. Sometime between then and now, I got into this position because I lucked onto a highly paid job and an opportunity to start a business. Both were just the outcome of luck, but that's another story. And I, my wife and I are both working the same exact job that we were working in before. So my unfreedom doesn't bind on me too much because I would be, if I was free to quit, I'd still want to work this job. Well, so, and there are a lot of people in that position. And it's easy to forget that I need that if I didn't like my job, I would need this other option. Um, and the thing is, the lower you go in the income and respect pool, the more it binds. So it binds on the poorer people. And I will guarantee that there are a lot of poor people, not just necessarily poor. Some are poor and other people are just people with really crappy jobs. That uh, really crappy working conditions. They might get paid a lot, but they hate their working conditions. And for whatever reason, debts or something, they can't quit. Now, these people are aware that, yes, I am unfree. They might not put it in the terms of my theory, which it took me, it took me something like 10 years to write this theory and say, this means I'm not a completely free person. Um, now I'm not saying just having this makes you completely free. You got to have a bunch of other things, but this is what I've focused on in my theory of freedom, because this is what I think other philosophers have left out. Obviously you need freedom of speech, freedom of association. You need a bunch of other things. It's not just about this. They might not have thought it out. They might not have thought it out in the terms I have, but they know that having to go and doing working for the man every night and day, um, is binding on them and making them unfree in ways that make them unpleasant. Uh, some people notice this, but other people might not be self-aware. You can be oppressed and not be aware. Truman in the Truman Show, he was oppressed and he didn't know it. He was a prisoner and he didn't know it. I'm, I'm experiencing it right now as a, as a, well, I've just graduated, but I'm going back to university and I have to go and work a couple of days a week just to survive. And I really don't, I mean, it's not that I don't like it. No, I, no, I do not like it. I, I think I could spend my time in other ways and, and contribute perhaps through this, perhaps by sharing, uh, sharing ideas like this. So yeah, no, I definitely, I understand yeah. that firsthand. There's a long, there's a long philosophical discussion of the contented slave. Now I'm not saying, that people who work, who have to work or starve are just like slaves. They're not just like slaves. Uh, they're much better off than slaves because they have a choice of employers. And having a choice of employers gives you some leverage. And it, it, it makes you way better off than a slave is in most conditions. You could, uh, you could mathematically come up, okay, under these conditions, you'd be exactly poorly off. Um, but it's true that the slaves... Uh, the, the former slaves after the Civil War, even with all the oppression they got under the segregation system, they were still better off than the slaves, most of them. Um, and that's true, but they weren't well off enough that we can say that they are fully free. To say that you're fully free, you got to be free from oppression. And blacks after slavery in the United States were still oppressed. Even though they were better off, they were still in that oppressed group. So there's big differences in that group. 
Um, and lots of unfree people are unfree in different ways. The poor person that has to work because he's a wage slave is way better off than the slave, and he might be better off than a, uh, um, uh, say a, a a slave who's who's whose boss rapes her all the time. Uh, a regular field slave is probably better off than a house slave who's who's really a sex slave for her boss, and they were the most expensive slaves in the slave time. Uh, they paid five times as much for a young, good-looking mulatto slave as they did for a, for a prime-age field hand because there was a lot of rape slavery going on, which doesn't get talked about that much. And those women were worse off than than the what we think of as the, the prime person being oppressed, the field hand slave. They were worse off. Um, they were they were worse off, but they were both still slaves. They were both still not completely free. And comparing, oh, which one of us has it worse off is not the point. Uh, the point is to get everyone up to that bar, not to try to separate the oppressed people in different ways, but try to get everyone up to that oppression bar. Now, that was kind of a digression, but the other reason that people don't free more slaves is we're trying to learn not to. Because society gives us this constant message. If you won't work, and what they mean by work is not work for yourself, if you won't go, what they mean by work is go in and take somebody else's orders 40 hours a week, unless you're rich enough to own a business. Um, you do this 40 hours a week or you are a bad person. You are lazy and no good and bad. And so to- they... Like I was yeah. recently in the U.S. and there are some people who work like they, they, you know, there is no living wage in the United States. So there are people who are working multiple jobs, you know, oh, yeah. 60 hours a week. Yeah. And these people have the audacity to call them lazy. I, yeah. It's criminal. It's, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And so what they have learned is to say is to is to is to um, characterize their needs in other ways. No, what I need is a better job. I'm willing to work. I want to work. That's all I want to do. Just, just give me a better job, you know, to help me find a job where, where uh, I'm not meatpacking all day with machines that are, that, that are, that are very likely to rip my fingers off as happens in our businesses. So people, people in, not only do they, so you have people who are very aware of how oppressed they are, but they're still saying what I want is a job. I want a good job because they know that's what works. But there are a lot of other people who've internalized that. I am a bad person if I don't, if it's job is not what I want. To be subservient to a boss is not what I want. Um, so people, some people think in those terms and some people pretend to think in those terms. And so I finally have uh, answered your first question um, as fully as I intended to. And we're now a half an hour into the show. So hopefully uh, well, you'll be I able think to. That's, I'm, I'm very glad we started off like that because I think just the philosophical underpinnings for uh, a, a universal basic income could really help people uh, understand why we should implement it or why we really should be considering and testing it rather than just going straight into what it is and how it could be done. I, I'm so glad that you asked me that because most people don't ask me that question. And it turns out um, that's the most I important part. <laughs> I can talk for a half an hour on the answer to that question. Ah, um, well, I, so, uh, I'm glad as well. I'm glad I've have, I learned a lot already. Um, so let's um, get into the basic income and implementation of it, and what it what it what it actually is. What is? Uh, I know we've kind of uh, talked on the topic, but what exactly is a uh, universal basic income? Okay, uh, universal basic income is the simple, simple idea that 
income doesn't have to start at zero in a capitalist society. Uh, you can have a market economy. The way we're used to it as a market economy is that if you don't own property and you don't have a job, then you get zero. You get nothing. Um, and and we have properties. Okay, if you end up in this unfortunate thing, maybe we'll have conditional things that you could be eligible for. Um, that that uh, if you're unemployed, we'll give you unemployment insurance. Or if you got a good excuse why you can't work, we'll give you something. But if you're able to work and you don't have property, you have to work. Of course, if you're able to work and you own property, um, then you don't have to work. So if if you own resources that can work for you, you don't have to do crap. Uh, so it's not even something we apply equally. You know, some your great grandpappy leaves you uh, leaves you some property. You never have to do a day's work in your life. Um, and where this other guy who had lots of disadvantages, you don't. They got to work. Okay, so um, so work now. Uh, if you're not eligible for a program, it's income starts at zero. It doesn't have to. Income can start at any number. Um, and what do you say? Have a, 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 as Bertrand Russell put it, you have a certain small income sufficient for necessities uh, to everyone, regardless of whether or not they work. And then you pay a higher income to people who do. So the idea of basically you don't take that income away when people get a job. They keep the income and they get the income from the job uh, is added on top of that. Of course, now we're going to take taxes out of what you make on your job. And eventually, if you get a really good job, those taxes are going to be more than you, you pay. Um, but um, you don't take you don't take it away. You just you don't take it away because you have a job. You tax what the job makes. And that way you're always better off. And you know you're better off. Your very day you get a job, you've got um, say you've got a, a basic income of twenty thousand dollars a year. Okay. And just, and just you to clarify, job, basic info, it's an unconditional payment to every citizen, regardless. Yes, yep, every single citizen, give regardless yep. of anything else, or whatever you're else you, you're eligible for. I think for. the term income uh, yeah. uh, can confuse people because they assume it's a, yeah. in, a, in exchange for work, but in this case, it's income yeah. for just for existing. Yeah. It is, um, uh, it is, um, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. It is is an income, an unconditional, universal, and unconditional income, it, and nothing's truly universal if it's unless it's un, unless it's unconditional. Nothing's truly unconditional unless it's universal. Uh, so you get this income. So say it's uh, your income. The basic income is twenty thousand dollars. Okay, and if this was unemployment insurance, let's say you had unemployment insurance, which over the next year was going to pay you twenty thousand dollars. And then you see a job that pays $10,000. In a lot of ways, you like that job. Um, say it's in, in a lot of other ways, it's a good job. It's something you care about. It's good working conditions, whatever. Um, uh, you know, it's attractive. It's not just an oppressive, horrible job. Um, and you'd like to take that job. But you're getting paid unemployment insurance of $20,000. So you have to take a pay cut of $10,000 just for the privilege of working. And there are people that are in positions like this in, in the world today, depending on the rules in your country. Um, it certainly happens in the U.S. where a lot of introductory jobs pay less than what you might have been making on unemployment insurance. Now, you're, you've got to be a pretty, a pretty nice guy to take that job, to take 
uh, to take a 50% pay cut for the privilege of doing a job. Okay. But if you've got basic income, you know what's going to happen. Well, if I take this job, I keep my $20,000 basic income, and then I take this $10,000 a year job, and I pay, say, say it's a really high tax rate, higher than we need, say a 50% tax cut. Okay. So taxes are going to come out of it, are going to be, are going to be, are going to be, uh, $5,000, but I'm going to keep the other five every week. I'll get a paycheck. So my income goes up from 20 to $25,000. So I'm better off now, whether it's worth it or not for me to take the time to be better off, um, is a question, but you will be better off. It's never making you worse off as the conditional system always ends up putting somebody in that position. When you get the job, you not eligible for the conditions, there are people who are going to be worse off. It's really almost impossible to structure a conditional system where the more you work, you're always better off. So it has that. Now, now a lot of people aren't going to, aren't going to work at a 10,000, uh, uh, something that's only going to make them $5,000 a year better off. But we have a, a saying in my country, everyone has their price. There's some wage that you'll work. If you're doing 20000 getting $20,000 a year for nothing, and you're going to keep that, and somebody, okay, how much on top of that do I have to offer you to get you to come out and do what I want you to do all day? Um, then, then there's some price that they'll do it. I don't think um, that there are too many people, um, that there are too many people living off uh, $20,000 a year for nothing. Um, uh, who wouldn't do a job as easy as mine for as high a pay as mine. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how much I get paid, uh, but I would tell you my job is really easy. I'm a college professor, which is one, and I'm a tenured college professor, which means uh, I'm trusted to do what I want to do most of the day anyway, and that I spend a few hours teaching class, and not every week, only actually about half the year i'm actually in class spend a few hours a week doing that a few hours a week on prep and the rest of the time is my own you're not going to get a job that easy for that kind of for the kind of money i paid uh and you're not and you're not going to get it for less because we actually the easier jobs tend to go to the people uh, who make more um it's at least some easy jobs do so uh yeah if you offer them what i'm making then if you're going to offer them what I'm making, yeah, I say just about everybody who's on who's on basic income will take that job. Um, and the people who won't are probably going to be uh, single mothers with kids who can't afford to do that job because they got a kid all day. And maybe even then they would do it and put the kid in daycare uh, as easy as my job would. I'd say a lot of mothers would do it no matter how much time they want to spend with their kid. Um, or you will get people who uh, who have some mental disability that's undiagnosed that makes it so they really can't or you get people that are too sick or too old in some undiagnosed way to do it so uh yeah people will do it and i think that we the reason we don't have jobs that pay that is we got an incentive problem in this country we have a big big incentive problem in this country and your country too and that is we don't give employers a good incentive to pay good wages wages are low because People have to have jobs to survive, and there's so many people that need those jobs to survive that they bid the wages down, and we need to have basic income to give people incentive to give good wages because everyone has their price. So once jobs pay enough, people will take, you know, they pay a good wage, um, 
provide a good uh, a good amount so that people want that job and you've got employees and that's your responsibility as an employer you ought to be paying enough that somebody that has a paltry twenty thousand dollars a year just enough to get by um you want uh um you don't want to pay that guy enough to make him come out and do what you want to do all day long you want him to come out and do what you're telling him to do take your orders all day yeah you ought to make it you ought to pay him enough so he'll come out so this ties into um, yeah, a lot of when, when people hear this idea of you know a basic income or even a negative income tax, they think that you know uh, people just withdraw from the labor market because their needs are being met. Why would they want to work? But in your um, paper, the bottom line in basic income experiment, you say that there's not only a lack of evidence for complete withdrawal, but there is actually uh, an increase at times. Could you explain why that might be the case? Okay, no, no there's not only a lack of evidence. Uh, okay. Uh, there's not only a lack of evidence for complete withdrawal. There's good evidence against a complete withdrawal. Um, a lack of evidence is not evidence of absence, as that's, we say in statistics. Um, there is evidence of absence. Uh, I remember the uh, uh, back uh, the head of the first negative income tax experiment. Uh, and just to uh, clarify, could you explain very quickly what a negative income tax is? Okay. Uh, sorry, I know we're bouncing okay. around a little bit. But okay. <laughs> yeah, um, this could be another 10 not, minutes. It, <laughs> yeah, it's not just my fault that my answers are so long. You're answering questions that can only be answered in really long. So it's, it's both of our faults. <laughs> I'll take so, the blame. Uh, I'm happy so, to listen. <laughs> um, in, uh, a negative income tax experiment is an experiment with a policy – very close to basic income instead of whereas instead of giving everybody a basic income you just give it to the net recipients but you can make it so it works pretty similarly and this this idea was a very popular idea in the 60s and 70s and so the u.s and canada did five experiments on these where they actually gave a negative income tax to uh thousands of randomly selected people and, and, and this was and, the nixon government right this is like a well it started under johnson but it was continued under nixon and Ford. Um, and actually, the last one w wasn't canceled until uh, until either the very end of the Carter administration or the beginning of Reagan. So, yeah, it went on through several several governments in the U.S. Uh, now, the the uh, so they had this experiment. And when they did these experiments, the guy who led the first one uh, said he actually sat down with the date. Usually when. When you're doing an experiment, you look for, you just look at the whole data everybody put together. Um, but he was, he, one day, or I don't know how many days, he said, I went through looking at the individual observation, looking, what is this guy's doing? What is this woman doing? What is this kid doing? What's well, it? Looking for these individual observations, trying to find somebody who just once they said, oh, I'm in this experiment, I don't have to work for the next three years if I don't want to, trying to find a person who actually did that. And no one did it. Not, not a even one, one person. No. Not a one. He, well, he couldn't find one. Yeah, fair enough. He could not find a single one. So there's very good evidence that hardly anybody will just take a vacation if we introduce the negative income tax at a decent level. So very good evidence of absence. Okay. Now, I'm pretty sure you asked me more questions. I did. Uh, there was more to it, but that's what I forgot. So where do you want to go next? Uh, well, uh, you, know, you said this is uh, 
this idea has been around for a long, long time, but, uh, but the second wave, uh, the second wave occurred in, you know, the, the 60s and 70s. And I guess, could you comment on when, when people hear this, they think, you know, this is full communism and, you know, all of that. Could you, how the, the thing is universal basic income kind of bridges the gap or it, uh, it doesn't bridge the gap, but it is, uh, it sounds very good to people on both sides of the political spectrum. Could you, could you talk on that? Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Um, this is this is very this is a very well simple in one sense uh, and very complex in another sense. So the simple answer is that um, a basic income at a high enough level is designed so that everyone has their basic needs. That it will be enough that you can buy food, shelter, clothing and whatever else miscellaneous items you need to have your basic needs met. So you're not on the edge and you're not on the edge of it. You know, that just some big emergency happens, you know, your kid has a toothache and you don't have dental insurance, you know, you can, you can pay that. So it's gotta be a decent amount. So you're not on the edge. So food, shelter and clothing plus so much miscellaneous. And it takes some research to find out how much you need for miscellaneous. But if it's at this level, okay, everyone's basic needs. You, you can look and say, well, a lot of the things government doing is trying to meet everybody's basic needs. We could cancel these things, or we don't need them as much, or we could cut them down. Uh, so in that simple sense, and, and it is a less bureaucratic way to do it, because um, most of the ways we do it now have really high overhead costs. And they're like, oh, are you eligible? Are you eligible? Did you, are you keeping up? Do you have a team? You get this. And we spend all of this money overlooking the poor to see if they're eligible. Or doing this complex thing to give them something else instead of money to make make food stamps, as we call them in the U.S., uh, available instead of money. we got to print special money, special poor money. Uh, so regular people use one kind of money and poor people use these food stamps. And then everybody can judge the poor people. Oh, I saw this guy using his food stamps for unhealthy food. Well, you know, I saw a lot of people with jobs buying unhealthy food. We don't judge them. You know? So um, – the, the, um, we, and we spend money doing this and that takes away from what we give to the poor. So one of the items and one of the selling points that a lot of people use for basic income is we can get rid of these programs that don't work so well and program and, and, and that will pay for a big chunk of this one program that works a whole lot better. Um, which, which is great. Now, um, that's great. It works fun. When you look at the politics of it, then it gets complex because there are people out there who want to kill every program for the poor because they don't want any redistribution. They're enemies of all redistribution. They want, whether they're conscious of it or not, they, their, their intention is to create a system where people are so desperately poor that they will take any job that comes along, which will, of course, create horrible working conditions and extremely low wages because that's the incentive it gives you. Um, now, um, and and so there are people that want to do this and might use basic income as an opportunity or the opportunity might present themselves. So we go around and we cut all these programs currently trying to help the poor. We do that and then uh, we introduce a basic income that's not high enough to meet their needs. And then a bunch of poor people just got worse off okay um and and maybe that's intentional 
uh, by someone who's trying to hijack this idea. I mean, basic income is about more help for the poor than they're getting because there's less supervision, more help. That's what it's about. But it could be misused to do that. Or it could have this effect over time. It could be that people will take things out. That's that's one of the dangers. But there's another thing, okay? Is it so so if you've got strong movement for basic income, there's a, a lot of things that it can replace. And it can make our money go farther. And that's one thing people talk about a grand bargain. Okay, the conservatives want to spend less money, less wasteful money. And the liberals want to spend more money, but they want to get more out of each dollar. They want more help. We could have a coalition where we say, okay, for the conservatives, we're going to use this more cost-effective policy. For the liberals, we will use a we will use a a better policy. I don't know you don't you don't use the same two terms in the same way in Australia, but I think you know what Americans mean when they use these. You know, we mean left to center, right to center. Yeah. That's all they mean in the U.S. So, um, so the uh, so you could have this coalition, and it might work, and it might be good for the poor, and you know, good for everybody, and that might. Work. Um, but there's this fear that it will be hijacked and end up making the poor worse. So that's the one problem. The other problem is that not everything, even if this coalition works and we get this, so we're replacing, uh, so we're replacing it in some way that that is not making the poor. It is, it is a lot more redistribution. You have people who have special needs. Okay, um, um, I say I'm a paraplegic. Okay. And I need a wheelchair and I need special checkups to make sure I got the right wheelchair. Okay. Well, um, we shouldn't make a paraplegic pay for her wheelchair out of her basic income. So she's got to scrimp on everything else to get a basic. We shouldn't make, we shouldn't make, um, blind people paying for their own leader dogs, you know? Um, and then old people, maybe, and, and, um, and also, then we have some people who maybe they live in cities and they need special uh, where where things are more expensive and they built their whole life there. Um, and we need to help them with housing. Uh, and then we have other people maybe who who we judge deserve more. Maybe retirees deserve not just their basic needs in retirement, but more because they work their whole damn lives. Okay, so we got to help these. So some people need more than the basic income because they have special needs. And other people, we want to give them more because they have special dessert. Even it's not dessert pie based. So we can't cancel everything. There's three reasons why we can't cancel everything. One is so they don't use this excuse to get the scissor. Another is some people need more and other people deserve more. However, we can cancel a lot. Okay. We can, there's a lot of things we can cancel. And there's other things we should cancel that they probably won't. A lot of tax breaks for people, uh, that are sold that these are going to help people. Uh, we don't need uh, some tax, like tax breaks for home ownership, or uh, are, are some of the tax breaks for wealthy farmers. You know, we got in the U.S. We've got this farm subsidy program, which ends up helping the wealthiest farmers and very little for the poor farmers. Um, and if we replace that with a basic income, most of your poor farmers are going to be better off, but the rich and powerful ones are going to fight that because they're getting millions of dollars in farm subsidies. So there's all these. And of course, in my country, we have a, a, a military budget um, compared that is six hundred fifty billion. To, it's, it's yeah, it's almost compared to the comparable to the rest of the world combined. Um, any any country you could imagine having the power to to tax to attack us, you could combine all of them. 
and we're spending more than that. Um, and then, uh, and I think one of the other top ones, one of the other top military, but a lot of the other top military budgets, we're paying for. It. So we're paying for most of the Israeli uh, uh, military budget at a substantial part of the Egyptian military budget when they're most likely to go to war with each other. So you cancel some of these things. You know, you cancel, you, you reduce, and, and you know what? Our military, you know why it's so high in the U.S.? It's not so high just because we're paranoid, afraid we're going to get attacked all the time. It's high because, because it's a good way for rich companies to get the government to give them money. They give some campaign contributions uh, for stuff the military doesn't even want. We have arms programs for stuff the military says we do not need. Congress makes them take it anyway because somebody wants to sell it to the government. That's called corruption, but we in the U.S. we have a catchy name for bribes. Uh, we call them ca- campaign contributions. You call it a bribe, we call it a campaign contribution. So you cancel some of these things, and that you replace that with a basic income. And yeah, we can pay for for, for most of it. The crap, you know, crap that we're spending so called on defense when it's really a redistribution to a, to a, a wealthy campaign contribute. I just can't, you know, it's. It baffles me that so many people are okay with, you know, the U.S. government spending so much money on, we'll say, death, you know, weapons of death or, you know, just on, on defense and on the military when there are so many people who can't even live, that there, that there are so many people struggling to, to survive. It's, um, I think, not enough people yeah. are thinking about that. Well, part of it is people, it, it is, this is how politics are going to work, is that um, you can't expect people to have the time to look into every issue. Um, you know, we're all citizens, and ultimately everything the government does is our responsibility, but we also have to lead our own lives. And and we've got to go about our own lives, and, and we can't afford to look into what is exactly going on on every issue, and who can I trust to tell me what's going on on every issue. So um, people – People who don't have time to pay attention, they will say, so and so, my opponent wants to cut this defense spending. He wants you to be more vulnerable to those terrorists who you've seen attack us. We had these terrorist attacks. People died, and they want less of that. Instead of saying, well, actually, no, this is just corruption to a bribe. It doesn't have anything to do with protecting us terrorism. That's really you gotta you gotta have some good knowledge to be able to compare those two, and you get a a politician who's done some other things that you know you like, so you trust them, yeah. and you make that mistake. That's how politics works. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Just, bef- I know we're getting. We're, I want to be respectful short on of time. time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but I, I just really want to yeah. talk on. Um, uh, when people hear about this, they think, you know, where's the money going to come from, and, and won't it cause, you know, a lot of inflation? Uh, could you talk on that? Um, will it cause inflation? Oh. That's, that's like the, the easiest one. Okay. That's, I mean, I don't even, I never even bothered to write a paper on this because it's, a, I mean, any competent economist can tell you, look, um, every time the government spends money, that creates inflationary pressure. Every time the government taxes money um, or sells bonds, that creates deflationary pressure. The reason we get inflation has to do with whether those things are in balance. You got too much money being spent being spent relative to how much you're taxing back or taking back by selling by creating debt you're going to have inflation 
and you do this and you got too much of the taking the money back through taxes and stuff and not enough spending, you're going to have deflation. And deflation is worse than inflation. Now, uh, and the tricky thing is that it's not a one-to-one balance. The balance changes over time. If you're in a recession, it changes. If you got a lot of foreign debt, it, the amount you can spend compared to how much you can tax changes. Um, if you've got a lot of people like the U.S., if you're a reserve currency, you can just spend money and other governments are just going to put that in a vault and never spend it. That's like free money for us. Okay, the fact that the Chinese have 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 uh, acres and acres of $100 bills in vaults um, get, means that the United States can print $100, spend it, and, and not have to tax people to keep that from circulating in the economy. So it's really complex to get that balance right. That's what the government should be doing. Um, and there's nothing special about basic income. It's just another kind of spending. You spend more on basic income, you got to tax more or take out more debt to keep that in check. That's all you got to see. You spend more on basic income, you rise more in taxes to counteract that inflationary pressure. It's really easy to do if you have a government that's ready to do it. It's like, hey, this spending, we do some in taxes and we we work around with uppering, upping and downing the tax rate so we can get the mix right and don't have inflation. We've got to counteract for with the recession. When there's a recession, you can spend more without creating inflation. When there's a boom time, you can spend less without creating inflation, without having tax. And you make it variable to do that. It's easy. So it's, it's really easy. That's just it's a completely it's it's a completely simple question. So thanks again to Carl Weidequist for taking the time to chat. All of the links to what we discussed and his work will be in the show notes, which can be found at talkoftoday.com slash podcast. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the email list. Don't worry, I won't spam because I'm too lazy. Basically, every now and again, I'll send an email highlighting some of the awesome stuff that we found on the interwebs and to highlight what we're working on at the moment. This will include a global citizenship concept that we would like to see become a reality. If you'd like to get more information on that, please head to www.globalcitizenship.today or head to the Talk of Today website where we have links. And we're also getting a Chrome extension developed uh, basically to help me suck less at getting things done and to help track things that I'd like to track and basically digitize these things uh, in line with the philosophy or the idea of the quantified self. So if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, get amongst it. Now, before I wrap up this podcast, uh, there are just a few things that I'd like to to talk about, to share, um, some things for you to ponder on the topic of basic income. Firstly, what are we striving for? And by we, I mean, you know, humanity, you know, our species. What did our ancestors work their entire lives for? Surely they'd want us to live lives filled with, you know, a bit more fun and comfort and less work. I mean, when they were asked, what do you think the future is going to look like? Do you think they said that people would spend half their waking hours working? Now, the wealth is there in the world. It just needs to be distributed more evenly. And it probably will be, because if half the world loses their jobs to automation, what then? Will governments allow people to suffer? And by governments, I mean we, because the government is a reflection of the people, and it draws its legitimacy from the people. Will we allow people to suffer? Will we allow people to 
to starve and to be homeless? Job automation is good. I think that any job that can be automated effectively should be automated. Automation is liberation. We won't have to waste our most precious collective resource, our time, on tasks that can be done by computers and robots. Instead, we can now use that time to learn, to volunteer, to create and consume art and entertainment, to do things that make us human. I understand that losing one's job can be terrible and can make someone question their their existence. For millennia, we have attached our sense of self-worth to our jobs through providing value to society in our own way, as well as to our families. But this is the world we live in. We can't protect outdated industries purely because they provide employment. And a lot of the jobs that are being automated are dehumanizing anyway. They reduce the complexity of the human being to basically being a smart robot that can take orders and do repetitive tasks. What we need is systems in place to help the people that are made redundant by these technologies and give them the opportunities to learn and grow and most importantly, live. Another term for a universal basic income could be an entrepreneur's allowance because it enables people to go out there and try and start a business without taking a huge amount of risk. And when I say business, I don't mean business in the traditional sense. Anyone who creates value for people should be able to receive financial remuneration for it. This value could be in the form of entertainment, through teaching, sport. Anyone with access to a computer and the internet can learn anything and create things that can be scaled to the rest of the world. This ties into something that uh, Carl and I spoke about um, in our first Skype call, and I really wanted to speak to him about it uh, in this podcast episode, but I forgot to uh, ask him. And what qualifies as a basic need? So obviously we have, you know, housing and food and water and access to sanitation. But in today's world, does access to the uh, is not access to the internet as fundamental in the 21st century as... Uh, access to clean water. I mean, there's basic needs in uh, that that are required for survival, but to participate in the social setting of the 21st century, do we require a, a personal computing device and access to the internet? I am of the opinion that we do, because as I mentioned, anyone with Basically, the internet is humanity digitized, and anyone with a personal computing device and access to the internet has access to the whole world. Uh, you can get healthcare, you can get free education. There's an inco- incomprehensible amount of information out there that one can access when they have access to the internet. So I think we'll we will see um, perhaps having something like a smartphone or a you know personal computer as becoming a human right because. The virtual world is as real as the physical world. There is no, uh, there's, there's no distinction. The internet is the backbone of society in the 21st century, and everyone should have access to it. If you want to hear more on uh, my thoughts on uh, the internet and how fundamental it is to, uh, well, society in general in the 21st century and what it can do uh, in the way in the way of delivering access to basic human rights and needs, uh, head to the YouTube channel because for this global citizenship concept that uh, we have in mind, 
uh, the internet is fundamental, and there's a we, we've made a little video that explains uh, all of this in great detail. Well, not in great detail, but in a decent amount of detail. So check it out. And if you have any questions, uh, please comment um, on the site. Head to uh, talk of today slash podcast and head to this podcast episode and just comment away. I will interact and answer your questions. Deal with. Um, I want to hear your criticisms, your thoughts on this, because it's a bit of a contentious subject, and uh, it's it's something that we need to talk about because change is happening. You know, it's the paradox of it's one of the paradoxes of uh, humanity in that we are so the one thing that is constant in life is change, but it's the one thing that we are most diverse to. I feel. Anyway, I'm going to get off this uh, this this soapbox of mine. Uh, If you've made it this far, thank you for listening and um, I hope you enjoyed the episode.